a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Well, here we are, day before Thanksgiving. I figured I would just uh, sit down and basically for two hours list off everything for which I am thankful. Alphabetically. (laughs) Just kidding. Actually, there's a lot that I, I could easily fill two hours and probably then some, but... Instead, I've got some great information to share with you this hour. Uh, We're going to talk about how anytime you hear someone say, the science is settled, that's a pretty strong indicator you're actually dealing with a kind of religion rather than authentic science. We're also going to talk about Jordan Peterson. If you're not familiar with him, if you haven't ever seen his book about, you know, rules, uh, his uh, rules for life, I guess he's got a new book out that uh, is, is drawing some, some interest and a little bit of controversy in a really strange way. We'll talk about that. Also, one of the most disturbing signs of the times can be seen in our tendency to criminalize childhood independence. You think I'm joking when I tell you this, but there are people who are calling child protective services on moms who let their kids walk home from school. I wish I were joking. I'm not, though. It's, uh, it's, it's a very sad thing. And if you've never heard or never really uh, uh, discussed permissionless innovation, that's a subject you ought to spend some time with. Um, people tend to think of it probably in terms of, oh, you're going to start a business and you know, do it without uh, going and getting permission from government to do it. That could be one form of it. But Art Carden from the American Institute for Economic Research has a terrific example of how permissionless innovation blesses the world in ways we hadn't expected. In fact, he shares the story of rock and roll legend Joan Jett and a career that never would have happened if she had waited around for someone to give her permission. And if there's time in this hour, I'm going to share with you some thoughts from Paul Gottfried. See, there's a very popular narrative today. Well, you know, by challenging the results of the election that didn't appear to go his way, Donald Trump is being a sore loser. He's being, you know, just a a really poor example of what, what it means to be in American politics. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe that's true. But Paul Gottfried has a really interesting take on the virtues of being graceless in the face of opponents who themselves have been the sorest of losers as well as the poorest of winners. I'm not saying two wrongs make a right, but I think Paul Gottfried makes a pretty good case for, uh, you know what? Why are you, why, why should Trump be expected to behave with perfect grace and decorum when his opponents have been the most classless pack of hyenas for the last four years plus. I'm sorry to engage in the name-calling, but good heavens. Talk about a double standard. All right, let's let's, uh, begin with the uh, declaration, the science is settled. We hear this a lot, particularly as it uh, applies to lockdowns, mask mandates, and that sort of thing. Climate change. Trust the science. I trust the science. Kent McManigle says, I just can't believe that people who claim to be listening to the science or trusting science are still supporting shutdowns and mask mandates. He says that's the opposite of trusting or doing science. It shows a lack of understanding of what science is. 
and how it works. Sure, he says, some people who really do use science are then advising shutdowns and masks based on what their observations are telling them. But he reminds us observations which are never the complete picture and which are always biased. So science is always provisional. In fact, it's waiting to be changed by better information. That's a really good explanation there. There is no the science because it's part of the scientific method. So he says, if someone says, well, the science is settled, they're not talking about actual science. They're talking about rigid groupthink, a religious belief based on, at best, partial information. People who trust science as a method rather than a religion understand this limitation. And that's why they don't demand political action based on their observations. They might give you advice they believe to be important, but they won't suggest using the violence of the state against you if you don't take that advice. You've heard me say it many times. I credit Paul Rosenberg with with being the one to point out the danger comes when you start mixing authority with science. You start commingling those two things, and it becomes politicized really quick. You've seen it all over the place in climate change, science we see it a lot in the lockdown science. So if you're going to bring the state to bear, you're bringing coercion into the equation. That does not bode well for a search for truth. That bodes well for dogma, looking to impose itself on somebody. Ken McManigle says, real science is a method of finding information. In other words, it looks at both the pros and cons, and every action have both. But it doesn't dictate It doesn't mandate, it gives information, provisional information. And then people decide for themselves how to act based on that. It doesn't involve politics. The science doesn't ignore the social costs, it weighs them against the benefits. Science understands that new data can change the conclusions. And one of the conclusions that Kent McManigle comes to is Dr. Fauci isn't doing science, he's doing politics, which means he can be safely ignored and even despised by people who understand science. No matter what science says, it doesn't give anybody the right to violate your liberty for the good of society. Nothing can do that. Man, you want to talk about a power-packed concentrate of common sense. There it is. What a great note to begin with. Again, you'll find it in the show notes from thebrianhydeshow.com. This is show notes for November 25th. 2020. All right. Also, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Jordan Peterson. Um, Jordan Peterson is back. He's got a new book out. I thought this was really fascinating. I think it was on Twitter that I saw where his publisher, and I'm trying to remember who his his publisher is. It's one of the big publishing houses. But uh, he has, uh, has a very popular book called The 12 Rules for Life. He's got a new book out. And I'm trying to remember what the new book is. Something like uh, Order... Here, hang on a second. Give me a moment. I will look it up, and then I don't have to just guess at it. Uh, The latest book is called Beyond Order. Now, interestingly enough, um, his publisher... Apparently, there are certain employees at his publisher... (coughs) Excuse me. Who, because... Jordan Peterson is not a rigid ideologue, at least according to their ideology. They report that they cried and protested and couldn't believe that our publishing house is giving this man a platform. 
And, and you have to understand, Jordan Peterson came to light back when Canada passed a particular law saying you could be criminally punished for not using a person's preferred pronouns. And Jordan Peterson said, look, you know, they can call themselves whatever they want. I'm not going to stand in their way. But he said, you start forcing me to do this? Absolutely not. I will not yield my mind to coercion that requires me to, to do something involving my free speech. And for this, he's been labeled, well, he's anti-trans. He's anti-LGBT. You know, he's, he's not woke. He's not inclusive. And the hysteria kind of grew from there. But this publishing house which I think he sold at least 3 million copies, possibly more, of his first book, 12 Rules for Life. That's a pretty big splash. I don't know, you know, I mean, look, I'm no expert on uh, on being an author or being a published uh, author for that matter, but that's a lot of money in the pockets of that publishing house. That's a lot of jobs at that publishing house. What kind of mental block would you have to have to sit there and protest someone who could bring that kind of success and that kind of notoriety to your place of business to say, I can't believe they published him. (laughs) We sat and cried because we couldn't believe that that the the publishers didn't censor this man. I mean, you want to talk about uh, shooting yourself in the foot? or better still, cutting your nose off to spite your face, that, uh, that sounds like uh, how it would work. I can't think of a better example of the, of the kind of rigid, ideological, dogmatic thinking that seeks to silence other people. You can't, you can't oppose him by putting a better idea or a better point of view out there. No. you got to cut his tongue out. Make sure he doesn't speak. It doesn't mean that you're right. To quote the uh, quote from Game of Thrones, it just simply means you fear whatever this man has to say. Well, that alone makes me think, well, maybe we should be paying a little closer attention to what Jordan Peterson has to say. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, actually the message in his first book. I think he, he also encapsulates this message in the second book as well. John Miltimore has a terrific write-up on Jordan Peterson's message. Why it matters to so many people. You don't sell millions of books without hitting the right nerve in a few folks, right? But also, why it brings up such vehement, vitriolic opposition in the people who would rather see him gagged. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. It's time to delve into some Jordan Peterson. And I've got to tip my hat to uh, our friend John Miltimore at the Foundation for Economic Education for this excellent essay. It's titled, Jordan Peterson's Most Important Rule for Life. And he's going to explain a little bit about uh, Jordan Peterson, how he's back, how the primary lesson from his book remains as important as ever. And you got to understand, Jordan Peterson is not writing from some ivory tower where he's been insulated from all the bad things happening. He has had a really difficult couple of years. And yet uh, he has come through it, and, and he's back. And, and, and this is why his message has great relevance to, to, to people like you and me. John Miltimore says, Nearly two years ago, friends purchased me a copy of Jordan Peterson's best-selling book, 12 Rules for Life. 
He says, I started the book shortly after receiving it, but, <laughs> excuse me, somewhere along the way, I got sidetracked and didn't finish. Now, he says, this never used to happen to me, but raising three kids has altered my reading habits. I feel your pain, brother. With uh, Peterson's recent return to the public scene, he says, I decided to return to the work. Currently, I'm reading rule number 12, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. And he says, I plan to review the work eventually. But he says, before tackling the entire book, it seemed appropriate to share the most important rule in Peterson's seminal work, which has sold more than 3 million copies worldwide. And that rule is, take responsibility for your life. That's it. It sounds simple, trite even. It's something you'd expect your father or your grandmother to tell you after you screwed up or got fired. Nevertheless, it's a message sorely needed right now. Norman Doidge, who wrote the foreword, foreword rather, to uh, 12 Rules, agreed that it is the primary lesson from Peterson's book. Quote, The foremost rule is that you must take responsibility for your own life. Now, keep in mind that Doidge is a psychiatrist, an author, and a friend of Peterson. Now, interestingly enough, and, and to be clear, Miltimore points out, take responsibility isn't actually one of Peterson's 12 rules. Still, Deutsch's assessment is correct, and it should come as little surprise. Personal responsibility over one's life is an idea embedded throughout the rules Peterson offers throughout his book as an antidote to the chaos many of us feel today. By the way, that's also a theme of his lectures and interviews. When Peterson says, stand up straight, make good friends, Set your own house in order first, tell the truth, make your bed, be precise in speech, etc. He's not really concerned about how clean your room is. He's instructing readers on how they can take control of their own lives. He's reminding them of their power, their agency. So the question is, why does this lesson suddenly feel so important? After all, Peterson's message isn't exactly new. In many ways, his teachings channel some of the ancient Stoics who millennia ago taught that the path to a peaceful, happy life was to master the one thing that humans can truly control themselves. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus once wrote, Where is the good? In our choices. Where is the evil? In our choices. <clears throat> now, John Miltimore points out the message of the Stoics was not to subject your own feelings, your own happiness to external factors. After all, we often have little control over events and circumstances and people. He says the path to harmony and happiness is learning to control how we as individuals respond to these things. The ideas of self-empowerment, self-control, and individual narrative, or initiative rather, are hardly unique to the Stoics, of course. Other ancient philosophies explored these concepts to varying degrees, and you'll find the themes interwoven in the American idea and found in classic works like Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac or Ralph Waldo Emerson's Self-Reliance. But he says the problem, as Peterson sees it, is Americans are no longer receiving these lessons. In an interview with British GQ, Peterson was asked, why are people so hungry for your message? And this was his response. He said they are hungry for a discussion of the relationship of responsibility and meaning. We haven't had that discussion in our culture for 50 years, end quote. Now, that's an incredible statement. For most of human history, thinkers have explored this issue. How are individual choices intersected with living a life of meaning, perhaps above all others? It was central to the philosophies of thinkers from Plato and Aristotle to Immanuel Kant and also Nietzsche. 
But Peterson says we no longer grapple with these questions. Postmodern philosophy has taken us in new directions. Peterson says we concentrated on rights and privileges and freedom and impulsive pleasure. Those are all useful in their place, but they're shallow, and that's not good. Because if people are moored shallowly, then storms wreck them, and storms come along. Wow, this year I think uh, probably taught us all a little bit about that lesson. Leaning into responsibility is how humans learn to bear storms, which are inevitable. And just so you know, he's not just giving you advice that he himself doesn't have to take. Um, as, as John Miltimer points out, Peterson encountered his own storm when his wife Tammy was diagnosed with terminal cancer back in April of 2019, and he struggled with dependency on the drug benzodiazepine. Peterson survived his storm because his life was moored in responsibility, which offered meaning and strength. But sadly, John Miltimore says many people today are unmoored. When Peterson says we haven't had a discussion on responsibility and meaning in our culture for 50 years, he's alluding to a cultural shift that's taken place. And it's not just that we don't teach people how to take responsibility for their own life. It's that in many ways we actively discourage them from doing so. Woke culture, safe spaces, victimhood, each is a manifestation of a culture that has replaced individual responsibility with collectivist notions of injustice. This is why people are openly hostile to Peterson's message of owning your life. Now, John Miltimore says this isn't to say that injustice isn't real. It is, and it always will be. But he says the problem is that in our quest of ridding the world of injustice, we forget that we have to first own and fix ourselves. Moreover, Peterson's message is not to ignore injustice. His message is to take responsibility for your life despite the presence of injustice, which will always exist. Peterson has pointed out, for example, that studies show a parolee's fate hinges to a troubling degree on whether the hearing judge ruled before or after her lunch. Apparently, hungry judges are much less likely to be forgiving. This is how one becomes a ship that can weather storms, not by placing your power in things beyond your control, but by taking responsibility over the things you can. And he says the fact that uh, the very fact that people can treat Peterson's message as foreign, strange, and worthy of their hostility is evidence of just how necessary it is. And so John Miltimore says we should be thankful that Jordan Peterson is back to deliver it. I would have to agree. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, Peterson has has all the answers to life, but anyone who urges getting your own world together, rectifying your own heart, putting your own house in order before you go out trying to change the world is probably someone worth listening to. And I think it also helps when you uh, understand that, you know, he's not shielded from the, the storms that can come into a person's life. Man, having your spouse diagnosed with terminal cancer, uh, that benzodiazepine um, dependency, that's not just a matter of, oh, yeah, well, you know, he was hooked on painkillers. No. With uh, benzodiazepine, I don't understand all the pharmacological implications, but I understand that when you are dependent on that drug, quitting at cold turkey isn't just a matter of, well, you're going to have a rough couple of weeks. No, it will kill you. That's pretty serious. Serious to the point, I think he ended up having to travel to like Russia or, or Ukraine or someplace far away to get some kind of you know experimental treatment to help him overcome it. Let me tell you why that, that to me, creates uh, credibility. Number one, it shows that, yes, in fact, this guy is human. He's subject to the same 
problems, the same challenges, the same anguish that any of us might be subject to. And it also shows that he is not asking anybody to do something that he himself isn't willing to do. Now, in my experience, when when you ask people to do something hard, that's really a, a big factor. If it's something that you have been willing to do yourself, you're going to be a lot more credible to the people you're asking to undertake something hard, even if it's just something as simple as take responsibility for your life. I think I may be purchasing a copy of his latest book just because I think he has a message worth assimilating. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm going to take this moment to, uh, to ask a small favor of you, two small favors, actually, if I, could, if I could be perfectly honest. Number one, I would encourage you, please go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, and check out my daily show notes. The notes for today will be November 25th, 2020. And uh, just look them over. There, I always find that I have more articles and more information to share than I have time to share within the constraints of this broadcast. So, you know, it's, there's, there's some great reading material there. I try to find a variety of things so it doesn't become a one-note symphony. But uh, I try to put together resources for wrong thinkers, people who are trying to see the world clearly and independently and who are unwilling to, to just knuckle under and do whatever they're told or think whatever they're told the prevailing narrative is, is going to require of them. So that's the first thing. Second thing, if you find value in the message that you hear, there is a link in the show notes that asks you to consider becoming a patron of this show. There's a couple ways you can do it. You can do it when you subscribe to the podcast. If you uh, subscribe to the podcast on Anchor FM, you uh, have the option of becoming a monthly donor. I have a number of people who do this. I bless their names. I thank them for helping to provide this because when they do this, it allows me the freedom to pursue this show and pursue the information that I share here um, without interruption. I mean, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I am willing to, uh, I'm willing to take on multiple jobs if that's what's necessary to provide for my family. But every dollar that is donated by my listeners actually helps me to focus primarily on this part of my work, which I consider the most important work that I do. And so if you, if you can find it in your heart to donate a dollar a month or $5 a month or $10 a month, you will help me continue to carry forward what I see as my mission to speak the truth to the best of my ability and, and make it as widely available as possible. And because of people like you, I'm able to do that. So thank you in advance. I want to share with you an article from Lenore Skenazy, the woman once called the most dangerous mom in America because she is a mom who teaches her kids childhood independence. The title of this article is Child Services Shouldn't Bother Moms Who Let Their Kids Walk Home from School. This was published on Reason.com. Now, that may sound like a pretty far-fetched thing. Really? Why would, the, you know, why would Child Protective Services get involved with a mom letting her kids walk home from school? Well, here's an example. The South Carolina mom who wants her kids' elementary school to allow them to walk home alone could find herself facing an investigation. 
ominously at the end of a local news story about Jesse Thompson's quest to get her kids' school to permit them to enjoy some fresh air. The anchor woman said social services could be called if the children are left to walk home on their own. Left to walk home. As if the mom is abandoning her kids rather than trusting them. Now, she has a link to the story in her article, which, again, you will find in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And the story involves Jessie Thompson, who's a mom of four. Her three youngest, ages 9, 10, and 11. These are not, you know, infants. They attend Span Elementary School in Somerville, South Carolina. They already walk alone in that neighborhood, and they look both ways before crossing on their way to extracurriculars. But the principal of their school has said they can't walk home from school without an adult present. Thompson must come and pick up the kids or the school will put them on the bus. Now, the school situated off a four-lane highway. uh, It's mistakenly identified as a six-lane highway by the TV reporter. It, it, It has extra turning lanes. The Thompson family lives on one side of the parkway and Span Elementary School is on the other, intoned the reporter as the camera dramatically zoomed out to illustrate the, illustra- the intersection. Rather, It has a crosswalk as well as walk, don't walk signs. Now, if the school believes no child can traverse this safely, why not station a crossing guard there, rather than insisting each and every parent come and fetch their kids? The bus ride takes longer than the walk. During COVID-19... Lenore Skenazy says it actually seems less safe than the fresh air option. As for insisting a parent come pick up the kids, this is a burden on anyone who can't afford to leave her job in the middle of the day. Presumably, Child Protective Services has better things to do than investigate parents whose kids walk home from school. So for Thompson, the issue is simple. Why is the school allowed to dictate what kids do once they leave school property? A lawyer for the district, Christy Graham, said the school is wary of liability issues. An additional concern of the district is for our students to not be harmed. Oh, well, that is so noble and controlling. But Lenore Skazy says, how far into the children's home life does the school's right to be concerned extend? It doesn't dictate where kids can walk on evenings and weekends, after all. Their mom says, I'm not naive, it's a major intersection, but just because it's not 100% safe doesn't mean it's 100% dangerous. No intersection can be guaranteed safe, but neither can a car ride to or from the school. Indeed, car passenger deaths are the number one way children die in America, but nobody stops parents from driving their kids home. She says, we aren't really criminalizing danger. What we're doing is criminalizing parents who don't helicopter, which means we're criminalizing childhood independence. Now, she says, with any luck, South Carolina will pass the Reasonable Childhood Independence Bill that passed their Senate unanimously and is now working its way toward the House, and at least it was before the pandemic shut the legislature down. Look, the bottom line is, she says, parents know their kids best. If they believe their kids are ready for a time-honored independence milestone, they should not be threatened with investigation for neglect. Not by schools and not by the media. I think I would agree wholeheartedly. And, and I echo that, that concern over how far does the school's concern extend? How far should it reach into the lives of these families? I'm not going to paint with a broad brush and tell you all principals are like this, but it does seem that some school administrators do have a little bit of an authority complex that, uh, that goes a bit too far. It, it brings to mind the reaction of school authorities when uh, Ammon Bundy was standing outside the stadium, alone, in the parking lot, far away from anybody, far away from the action, watching his son play football. 
But because he refused to don a mask, you know, to signal his compliance with the, the school's policy, they shut down the game. That was the call of school administrators. And it was purely based on the fact that we can't get this guy to obey us, so we're going to punish everybody and, and show them our authority. I don't know. That's a, that's a pretty scary little flex on the part of uh, what apparently is a, is a petty little tyrant. That line needs to be drawn more clearly. And parents, you need to be able to stand up and say, enough. This is my kid. I'll make the decisions. I have the responsibility. Thank you very much. All right, shifting gears. I love this story. This is from Art Carden, published on the American Institute for Economic Research. Maybe it's because uh, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts really burst onto the scene in, uh, when was it, about 1981. I was a sophomore in high school. And I Love Rock and Roll came along, and you know what? It was, uh, that was a great song. And we all rocked out to it, loudly, to our parents' dismay. But do you realize, without permissionless innovation, Joan Jett's career likely would never have happened. Art Carden explains, he says, the late 70s and early 1980s were a turbulent time on the music scene. Punk rock came into vogue, disco was breathing its last, and a band of teenage girls called the Runaways went through several lineups and actually had a minor hit with Cherry Bomb. Now, they never really got that far in the United States or Europe, but they did open for several prominent bands, and they also made it pretty big in Japan. Several Runaways became stars after the band broke up. Lita Ford went on to solo success. Original member Mickey Steele joined the Bangles. But the group's biggest eventual star was Joan Jett, who would lead Joan Jett and the Blackhearts to the top of the charts with a cover of Arrow's I Love Rock and Roll in 1981. He says over the next decade or so, they would produce memorable hits like Bad Reputation and I Hate Myself for Loving You. Their 1990 album Hit List featured covers of songs like ACDC's iconic Dirty Deeds. She and her band would be semi-satirized memorably in uh, the comic strip Bloom County as Tess Turbo and the Blackheads. But he says it almost didn't happen. Because after the Runaways broke up, Jet approached 23 different record labels and she was rejected 23 different times. Eventually, she decided to go it alone. She and her husband started their own label, Blackheart Records, and sold several million copies of I Love Rock and Roll. Now, it was a triumph for the most part which of what Adam Thierer calls permissionless innovation. Now, she had to secure rights to the song, of course, but still... She didn't get permission from already existing record labels or a skeptical ministry of culture loath to bless her efforts. She just did it. And he asks us to imagine what would have happened if she needed permission from the ministry of culture. How likely is it that a bunch of refined sirs and madams would say, let's let one of the queens of noise cover Gary Glitter's Do You Want to Touch Me? Do we really need a new version? Do we need a new version of I Love Rock and Roll for that matter? Isn't one version good enough? One can imagine them saying, come back when you can sing, or come back when you're dressed like a lady, or worse, like in the video for Bad Reputation. <laughs> but with the twist that Jet has nowhere else left to go, record executives, you know, could, could refuse to pay for or distribute her music. But they could not stop her from doing it herself, as one publication that had panned her work put it, selling records is the best revenge. We'll come back to this story in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I'm indulging in a love of mine. Yes, the love of rock and roll. I know I'm not alone. But uh, did you realize that Joan Jett of Joan Jett and the Blackhearts had such an uphill climb? I didn't until I read this great article by Art Carden published on the American Institute for Economic Research. And, and I'm grateful that he published this because this is one of those story behind the stories that not only illustrates, uh, wow, she really earned you know her, her uh, reputation and her, her deserved stardom by going out there and, and, and making it work in spite of 23 different rejections by 23 different record labels. But mostly it's a great illustration of what permissionless innovation is all about. Not waiting for someone to give you permission to succeed or, <clears throat> in our case, maybe permission to be free. You just go out there and make it happen. Oh, that sounds terribly subversive, but uh, hey, the question is, does it work? Is it peaceful? Yes and yes. Art Carden says the tastes of hoi polloi dominate mostly free markets. And he says it was the the people who answered the sirs and madams of the Ministry for Culture by repeatedly voting for I Love Rock and Roll with the dimes they put in the jukeboxes around the world and by requesting it on radio stations. About two and a half decades after it was released, people were still voting for it by downloading it from iTunes. In fact, he says that's what he did when he got his first iPod back in 2007. People continue to vote for it today every time someone listens to it on Spotify. Now, Art Carden points out, yes, a lot of popular music is hot garbage. And he says, as I've gotten older, wiser, and more refined, I've started really listening to the lyrics of a lot of the songs I loved growing up. And let's just say, lyrics like, you need coolin', baby, I'm not foolin', I'm gonna send you back to schoolin', and I'm gonna give you every inch of my love from Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love, don't exactly parallel Milton, Shakespeare, or Wordsworth. Even Shakespeare's plays had fart jokes, though, and one of the comic characters in Twelfth Night was not so subtly named Toby Belch. Now, Shakespeare probably wouldn't have made it down to snobs like us without at least a little success among the rabble. As an aside, look around the next time you're at a government-subsidized symphony, musical, opera, play, or performance by a famous dance troupe. Ask yourself how you think the audience's median income compares to the median income of the general population. Art subsidies are welfare for the rich. He says, Joan Jett has been a rock icon for decades, not only because of her trademark sound and persona, she's a legend because of her pioneering business acumen and her refusal to give up after hearing no from major record levels, labels. rather. Even if you think the queen of noise produces nothing but noise, her success in a world of permissionless innovation is a good reason to love rock and roll. Well said. Thank you, Art Carden. That was... Uh, that was kind of a fun and refreshing article. Okay, I'm going to dive into some uh, election politics here. I'm just warning you, if this may be the point where you say, okay, enough, and uh, it's time to, to bow out of, of this episode. But there's a great article from Paul Gottfried. This is on AmericanThinker.com, and it has to do with the virtues of being graceless. I'm seeing a lot of criticism leveled at uh, Donald Trump these days about being a graceless loser. But there are some points here that Paul Gottfried makes that I think are worth considering. He says, Rich Lowry at the Trump Unfriendly National Review titled a syndicated column on November 20th, Ugly Exit. 
Now, Lowry, who's made a habit of dumping on the Donald, complains that Trump's unwillingness to graciously concede to Joe Biden reveals his deep-seated inability to admit defeat. His gracelessness is also somehow harming elected Republicans who feel the need to play along. So far, according to Lowry, Trump has been exploiting the suspicions about the process that bedevil his party after a heated race. And Lowry says, but it's wrong for Trump to fuel the doubts with a constant flow of bad information and conspiracy theories. Paul Gottfried says, it seems that Lowry seems no significant, uh, no evidence of significant fraud anywhere in this election, but is willing to give Trump the chance to ferret out fraud and have his day in court. Now, Gottfried says, unlike Lowry, I'm struck by the numerous irregularities in this race, from the appallingly low number of rejected ballots in the battleground states to the affidavits submitted by those who witnessed dishonest ballot counting to the exclusion of Republican poll observers in heavily Democratic wards. He says, I'm also open to arguments about Dominion software changing millions of pro-Trump votes, although he says, I want to see more evidence before fully accepting the bold charges coming from Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. But he says, arguendo, let me concede Rich Lowry's point, which is that there's nothing out there that would lead me to believe Joe Biden did not win the presidency. Should Donald Trump readily concede the race and extend congratulations to the victor? That would end those suits that Lowry and other mainstream journalists consider unnecessarily divisive and allow the new administration to begin an untroubled transition to power. But he says, I can't imagine any advantage that would accrue to the right from doing this. Would Lowry's non-ugly exit cause the left to treat the other side more sympathetically or regret what the outgoing Obama-Biden administration did to Trump during his transition, namely getting the FBI to spy on the incoming president and his staff and then manufacturing a fake dossier about his collusion with the Russian government? See, that's a fair question. Lowry, Chris Wallace, Brett Beyer, and others of their persuasion believe the Republicans must set an example of niceness while the other side is free to behave like thugs. One reason Republicans lost the presidential race was that they allowed the Democrats in state after state to engage in questionable tactics, like using Democratic judges in his state of Pennsylvania to sign off on late ballots, and a lot else that should never have been allowed, even though the state legislature did not approve the changes. And he says, I still can't get my head around the fact that Brian Kemp and his Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, in Georgia did everything they could to please the hustling <clears throat> Democrat Stacey Abrams, who never conceded her defeat to Kemp in the gubernatorial race in 2018, lest they be accused of what? Racism? <sighs> These Republican officials allowed late ballots and even ballots without matching signatures to be counted in the presidential race. Unfortunately, these procedures will remain in place for the senatorial runoff races on January 4th. Now, he says it may be far more productive for Trump to show defiance than exude graciousness. Do the accommodators really believe that if they oblige the Democrats, the high-tech companies that are now joined to the new administration at the hip won't continue to cancel conservatives? Will the courtesy being recommended cause Democrats in high place to throw away their hit lists against Trump supporters? Does anyone really doubt that a Biden, really a Harris administration, won't direct the IRS to punish conservatives and devout Christians just as the Obama-Biden administration did? In other words, what reason does Trump have to concede, ever? Hillary Clinton went on screaming that the presidential election had been stolen from her for four years after losing. As late as May 2019, Biden agreed with a fan in New Hampshire that Trump's election was illegitimate. Why should Trump behave more indulgently toward his opponents?
such unreciprocated generosity is not likely to make the left like them better. There's also the problem of not only a disputed election, but also of the unremitting, vicious war waged by the Democrats and their media allies to unseat Trump. These include a ludicrous impeachment proceeding, an endless collusion hoax, and expressions of sympathy for rioters and looters during the summer, whom the Democrats were hoping would create more chaos for the Republican administration. Briefings can go on between the outgoing and incoming administrations without concession speeches. The former doesn't depend on the latter. And Gottfried says, I do not agree with Mark A. Thiessen of Fox News that Trump has the best chance to reclaim it, meaning the presidency, in four years if he concedes, but also promises to return. Well, why would the organized left not treat Trump in 2024 just like it's doing right now, namely as a punching bag? Clearly, Biden already has headaches dealing with the powerful left wing of his party. Why shouldn't Trump and his loyalists increase this disorder by firing away from the right? He says, let's not reward these enemies by permitting them to gloat serenely over their spoils. Now, I'll grant you, that's some, that's some firebrand stuff right there. I don't know if it's the right approach or not. But I do think he brings up some points that are worth considering. And, and one of those has to be, look, to, to any thinking person, I think there are irregularities. If nothing else, looking at the, the vehemence and that relentless attack, attack, attack on Donald Trump over the last four and a half years. Now, you don't have to like Trump to, to just question out loud people who were working that hard to do anything, including lie, including fabricate, including, you know, gin up, you know, impeachment proceedings. Are we supposed to believe that really they would set that aside and that, you know, really, you know, for the sake of the integrity of the election system, we must, you know, make sure that this thing goes off as, as smoothly and fairly as possible? Because their behavior has been so unhinged to, the, to this point, I sure can't put it past them. And it's not a matter of, well, gee, you know, we've got to have Trump in there. It's more of a matter of if they are capable of gaming the system, and, and playing it like a fiddle, none of us is safe in our, in our franchise to vote. None of us has a voice under those circumstances. That's a lot more dangerous than Trump, no matter how much you don't like him. This is The Brian Hyde Show.